Welcome to TBA Now. I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah. I am blessed to know the many extraordinary people who are connected to our congregational community. This podcast is an opportunity to get to know who they are and what they do. Amy Cohen has been a member of Temple Beth Avodah for a long time, 40 years. She and her husband, Paul, and their children, Alyssa and Jason, are all deeply rooted in the TBA tradition. In fact, Amy's a past president and has been on virtually every committee on her arc of leadership here. Amy's professional life is all about her agency, Adoptions with Love. She counsels expectant parents and adoptive parents. Her work has touched so many precious lives, and we're so lucky to hear about her work and her life. Give a listen. Amy Cohen, welcome to TBA Now. Thank you. Glad to be here. You are one of the very few guests who has been at Temple Beth Avodah since before I even got here, and that's 25 years ago. I'd like to start just by asking you, how is it that you got to Temple Beth Avodah? Okay. Well, after graduate school, my husband and I moved up from New York to live here. We just decided this is where we wanted to live. And we decided we needed to go to a temple. My father, who's who was a rabbi, said you need to go to find some place to go for high holiday services. And he found Temple Beth Abadai. He found Rabbi Miller for us um, and said you should go here because it was close in proximity. So that's where we went. And Rabbi Miller took us under his wing. And we've been members ever since. I think it's been 40 years. Also, that's very strange is, you know, a lot of people don't join before they have children, but we joined several years before we had children. So we were part of a Chavura group and it was nice to get to know people, a very welcoming community. We made many friends that we still have to this day. How does the the feel of the congregation compared to the one in which you grew up? Well, it's very different because I was in a very different role. Being a rabbi's child Everybody knows who you are, and that means everybody's looking at you and probably looking at what you're doing. It also has its advantages because I got away with a lot of stuff. You know, <laughs> when I was in Hebrew school, if I misbehaved, who was going to send you to the rabbi's office? You know, what was the, you know, it wasn't going to do too much. So, and I wasn't afraid of him. So it, <laughs> it, it didn't make a difference, but. I don't think you're afraid of too many people with all due respect. I think you're. That's true. I'm yeah. not. <laughs> but I think. One of the reasons why we like to stay here at Beth Avodah, even though we move from Chestnut Hill to West Newton, is because this is a smaller congregation. And my father's last congregation was a very large congregation, over a thousand families. And that was too much. It, It didn't have, I never felt that community, that closeness. You know how before the pandemic, everybody would hug and kiss each other all the time. Never, never felt that. It was never that warmth. And so this has been, uh, really becomes more of a a sense of family for you. Yes, very much so. You mentioned your dad and 
growing up a preacher's kid and uh, some of the benefits and detriments uh, that are part of that. Your dad was involved in a really interesting organization that uh, became, that um, I think originated in the 60s. Could you tell us about that? Yes. Um, my father was part of an organization called Clergy Consultation Services that started in 1967 and really was illegal. And we were living in Chicago at the time. And what this group of clergy did, you know, there were some Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish clergymen that were all a part, and clergy women who were all a part of this, and they counseled women who had unplanned pregnancies and wanted to seek out um, maybe terminating the pregnancy to have an abortion. And what my father would see these women, they were referred to him. And it's very interesting when I helped my mother clean out um, the house about six years ago, we came across all his files. And he had very technical files about all of this with reproductive organs, showing how the procedure was done, you know. So he counseled women on the physical part of, of what an abortion was and also helped them to find the appropriate resources. And my sister and I were just discussing this recently, and he used to hide his files behind the Torah. He had like a secret hiding place back there. So he would wow. put the files there. Yeah. Because they they were doing something that was not legal there. And um, he would refer women, they would go to New York, to Mexico, to um, England, but they had to have resources to do this. And he was part of this counseling coalition. And um, I guess looking back at to what's happening in our society and the possible and unfortunately likely overturn of Roe v. Wade. I should have saved the files, but I was trying to clean things out. So we we got rid of them. But um, it's, it's going to be sad if we all have to go underground again about all of this. It is really an extraordinarily difficult time to even consider that this is a serious possibility. I wonder, Aim, from this background, so as a young person, uh, you were already acutely aware of this work and its uh, necessity. I wonder if you could trace from that any sense of how you ended up doing what you're doing. Tell us what you do, where you work. I am the executive director of Adoptions with Love. We are a small, nonprofit, full service domestic adoption agency with our offices right here in Newton, Massachusetts. We are licensed by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in order to do adoptions in Massachusetts either when you're coming to adopt or a woman contemplating making an adoption plan, you must use a licensed agency. And licensed is either public, which would be the Department of Children and Families, or private agencies, of which we are one. And by full service, I mean that we 
work with prospective adoptive families looking to adopt a child, and we do their home study process with them. And we work with the pregnant women who are facing an unplanned crisis pregnancy, contemplating placing a child for adoption. And we bring the people together and provide all the services around that. We work with women all over the country. Up until 1996, we would bring most of the women here to Massachusetts, and they would live with the family, deliver the baby here, and then place with another family or go home. They would make a decision, nope, I can't do this. I want to parent my child. I want to bring my child home with me. And that's their choice. So I would work with the women also. Also, one of the most rewarding pieces I've done, and I I have to do more of this really, is to work with the women post-placement. And there's a group that I run with many of the women. Um, It's been harder during the pandemic to do this because we would all, you know, get together in the office in the evening, we'd get some pizza and, and just, you know, they would talk and support each other. The good thing is I keep in touch with many of these women and they remain attached to each other. And one thing many of the women say to me, nobody gets it, but women who have been through this. And for women who decide to go to an adoption agency, you're suggesting that the experience is so, I mean, I I think it would be fair to use the word traumatic uh, for many not all, but but for many of the mothers. It definitely is. It When I work with women contemplating making an adoption plan, I tell them this will be the most difficult decision they ever make in their life. Those of us who have studied grief work, and I know you have with people, you work with people with death and dying and such, and I go to all these seminars and they talk about traumatic loss, no one ever talks about adoption. And I always want to say, you need to talk about it. This is one of the most traumatic losses that anyone can ever experience, not only for the biological parents, but also for the child as they grow up. It is a trauma to them that they lose this connection with their biological family. And that's where open adoption has been a wonderful thing in the world of adoption. It has gone from, in the years that I've been doing this, from pretty close to much more open. And it's much healthier for everybody involved. You know, I wanted to ask you, generally, do you counsel parents adoptive parents to share their child's story with them um, as young as is appropriate? And what is that age? Yes, we counsel people to talk to their child from the moment they pick up their child. And you know, when you hold an infant and you sit and talk to them, you begin to tell your child their story. Part of the reason there is to find the words to explain this to your child so that when they do understand, you can express it in a way that will be helpful for your child, in a way that it will help to form a strong identity 
about who they are, about all the pieces in their life. So you tell your child their story and you tell them, you use the word adoption. You talk about their biological parents, usually just using their name, talking about you grew in Susie's tummy. You didn't grow in mommy's tummy. Mommy couldn't grow a baby in her tummy. And you start with some things that are very simple and concrete like that. You know, you have to really understand your child's developmental level so that you're explaining to them things that they can comprehend and incorporate into themselves. The three most difficult conversations that parents will have with their children are about sex, drugs, and adoption. And as being a parent, you have to be honest and open about all of it. The most important thing we can do as parents is to establish open communication in your homes. You want your children to know that they can come to you with anything, that it is safe in your home to talk about any topic. So is that, um, for clarification and definition, the difference between an open adoption and a closed adoption? Well, that's from like 30 years ago where things were more semi-open, where they knew some, they had some information. Closed is when they really almost have nothing. And in open adoption, there's an ongoing relationship. There's an ongoing exchange of information. So the children who have been placed in more recent years are not going to have to come back to us for any information. Their parents are going to have it all, and they've had ongoing contact. You know, with the invention of emails and cell phones and texting, you know, people are keeping in contact without us even being involved anymore. And some people are meeting up on a regular basis. Who are your clients? Our clients are two well, they start out with two sides, and then there's a third one. We call it the adoption triad. So there are the adoptive families, you know, and there's your traditional heterosexual couple who comes to us. And then there are many male couples who come to us. They have not dealt with infertility, but obviously they cannot physically reproduce a child together. We also work with single women who have reached a place in their life where they want to have a family, decided they either do not want to become pregnant on their own or many who have tried and cannot, and they want to build their family through adoption. So they will come to our agency. We've had a couple of single men come to us, but not many. You know, So we provide all people. Um, we do not discriminate for anything. Um, you know, we've had some transgendered families also come to us. Um, mm. You know, what we're looking for is a family that can pro provide the best home for each child because our most important client is the child. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, we provide services to everybody else and we're all making decisions, but this child is the most important person in all of this. My guess is there are times that you need to remind people of that. Every day. <laughs> Do you have a number of how many children 
you have placed for adoption? Do you have any idea of what that number could be? It's several thousand. Wow. Yeah. What's been the hardest part of your job? The grief, the sadness, the loss, you know, on on all sides. You know, I, you know, when I, when the adoptive parents come to us, um, the prospective adoptive parents, many come so beat up and wounded. Not only is it the loss of this biological child, but it's been the years of infertility and being undergoing surgeries, both male and female, undergoing significant pregnancy losses. You know, many of the women being shot up with hormones for years. I mean, it just physically and emotionally, people are so beat up when they come to us and they're looking for some hope. So that's hard. And then working with the women who place a child for adoption and sitting with their pain. I mean, there are many times I sit and cry with them. You know, their pain is just so palpable. I go to the hospital after they give birth and, you know, I hold their hand and I hug them and I help them deal with their grief. And when they sign the consent to the adoption, we usually do that in the office. And it's it's a very formal proceeding. We record it. It's one of the things we say in the beginning. It's as if you were in a court of law. There's a notary and two witnesses there. Mm. And we read off 36 questions that they have to answer. And one of the hardest is, is do you realize that you are giving up all legal claim to your child? Do you realize you may never see your child again? Yeah. And let's say someone's doing this four days after birth. It's so painful. As you were describing this, Amy, I was wondering if there have been times when that mom is giving birth that you're the only person who's there for them. Yes. It's, um, and sometimes I feel very maternal towards these women. You are a nurturer by nature. And I wonder, that's really hard stuff. It, it is. And, um, you know, one thing they teach you in social work is about maintaining your boundaries. And in the work that I do, you just have to figure out where it's appropriate. We're we're not doing therapy where one per, where you're just sitting there and talking about things. These are the most intense of human emotions, um, and these are very intimate acts that we're going through. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I've had college students that I've worked with who don't want to tell anyone. They don't want to call their parents. I will take them home from the hospital. I will stop at the drugstore to get the medication that they need. I will bring them into their apartment to make sure they're safe, to make sure they have food. And then eventually they need to separate from me, though, and I have to find them another therapist. And one of the things I always try and do is encourage them to tell people it's very hard to keep a secret. Yeah. I'm I'm assuming it... This stage, you're probably on call all the time. Yeah. Um, I, I've always been on call all the time. 
you know, not so much in the beginning, but as the the role grew, and especially when I started working with the pregnant women, because their needs are so great and babies are not born nine to five, you know, and their calls at three in the morning, you know, Paul is used to being woken up by the sound of my phone. And there are times, you know, when you're on the beach, if I go into the water, Alyssa can answer my phone and knows the spiel to give. And then Jason mimics me. He just goes on and on mimicking how I talk on the phone, how I talk to these women, the questions I ask. So it goes into my whole life. And that's why it's hard to find good people to come in when, you know, I do this with my partner, Nancy, when we're ready to retire, you know, we got to find people who can, who are willing to live this type of life. Yeah. It sounds like a very complex, rewarding, but complex and sometimes really uh, painful experience in the course of uh, 24 hours. It's kind of like they're, you're, you're pro- providing them with a life preserver and they're holding on for your life. Yes, that's true. And that's part of the work that I want to do with them is to help them feel that confidence and to empower them to make these choices and to believe in themselves so that they can go out and form better relationships and be able to ask for the help that they need. And, um, you know, we just heard about one woman who she placed her child for adoption. She had another child with her, like a two-year-old. They were living in a hotel. Very long, complicated story, but the counselor who we hired to work with her in one state drove her to live with a friend in another state. And she's doing great now. She's gotten training. She works for TSA. She has another job working in a doctor's office. And she maintains contact with the family that adopted her child. They said, she's a different person. She's doing great. And She was so needy. She had no one. She couldn't even, her sister kicked her out during the course of her pregnancy. She had no one to go to, but we found her this other counselor who who helped her. You know, we find people all over the country who do good work like we do. And we, we have our own network that we talk to each other and we help each other and we help these women in need. And, you know, what I've learned to do, and this is my older age talking, is that I've learned that if I can do a little bit to help each person, then I've done good work. Yes, I want to change the world, but if I can just do my little piece of it, I know I've done a good job. And when I see people move on and do well, it's very gratifying. And that's why maintaining those relationships is very, is very important. Specifically, what came to mind listening to you was the real um, cavalier way that abortion opponents say, well, no, no abortion, just give your child up, place your child, this child for adoption, as if it's a process that is simple, and um, there are plenty of people that can help make it happen. And 
plenty of families willing and ready and plenty of mental health professionals and all the other parts of the puzzle that makes your work possible. And it is really on your behalf as a professional, it's really insulting to listen to people talk about adoption as if it were um, some simple process. Well, that that's true. Adoption is not a replacement for abortion. They are two completely different things in the world. Um, and this whole issue has more to do about a woman's right to choose. And what we do in the work that we do is we counsel women to make the best choice for themselves and for their child at this point in their life. And that's what's very important. And to have that right taken away and to take the control away from their uh, from their own bodies is really in many ways sinful. I mean, unfortunately, I feel we're going backwards in this country. I think this clergy coalition consultation is going to have to be re-upped. You know, I, I want to say that, you know, the whole issue of abortion and adoption, one does not replace the other. And it's very important to know that um, when we work with women, most of them are coming to us in the last trimester of their pregnancy. When women call us in the beginning of their pregnancy, we do counsel them about their different options because it's their choice. Some women would say, I I could never do that. And that's their choice. And some women who look at our material, find out what adoption is about, think about termination, think about parenting, decide that termination is appropriate. So we want to send them to a safe place where they can have this procedure done. Our job is to counsel them and educate them so that they each make the best choice for them and their child. Hmm. But it is about choice. And see, I think this is so important for people to know about your agency and about you that um, an assumption could be made. Well, you know, obviously their their business is you know, having children to place for adoption. and But what you're saying is what comes first is who that woman is and to give her what her options are. And the option of termination is absolutely uh, respected in your work. Yes. And it's very important. And if a woman comes to us and she says she wants to make an adoption plan for her child, we explore all those options with her. Does she want a closed adoption, a semi-open adoption, an open adoption? But we also explore with her, is there a family member who could really help you to raise this child? How, what would make it work so you wouldn't have to make an adoption plan? Because this is not their first choice. Say more about that. Any woman contemplating adoption has already thought about their other options. Usually, if they believe that 
in terminating a pregnancy in abortion, they'll think about that for a while. And they'll also think about parenting the child. You know, what does my life look like? What are my supports? Do I even know who the father is? And if I know who the father is, is he even going to help me? I've had women who are in abusive marriages who find themselves with an unplanned pregnancy. We've gotten calls from Planned Parenthood of someone who's come in to have an abortion, but they're at 36 weeks and cannot. So they will make a referral to us. I mean, we have worked with Planned Parenthood and go in and do trainings with their crisis teams so that they can give the options to women faced with a crisis pregnancy. And I think that's important for people to know is that Planned Parenthood is not just about abortions. They are about educating women about their choices and providing services and providing healthcare services. You know, this that's not what pe- the majority of people understand. It's about providing healthcare and options to women so that they can make the best choices for themselves and for their children. So as you say that, it's kind of frightening that for poor women, the overturning of Roe v. Wade has an enormous number of consequences in terms of issues related to health care. The health care disparity seems like it's only going to become more severe. Is that the case, do you think? Most definitely. I work with a lot of women who are homeless, who are living in poverty with children already. 50%, over 50% of the women that we work with already are parenting children on their own and they're living in poverty. And if these women who would choose to terminate an unplanned pregnancy are then forced to parent this child because many of them will not choose adoption, they will not be getting prenatal care because in many states in this country, they still can't get insurance. They don't have the resources to look for it. And they'll walk into a hospital and give birth. Maybe someone will help them to apply for Medicaid. And they'll be bringing a child home that will not have the clothes. Now, nobody's got the formula, but um, the diapers. You know, we have many women who come to us because they are thinking about choosing, do I get shoes for the child or formula? We help many women buy diapers, even though that's technically not what we're supposed to be paying for when we help. But if they have another child that needs diapers, you're going to help them get diapers because food stamps don't pay for diapers. How is that even possible, Amy? Don't get me started. It's just- What's the logic? It's mind boggling how we let so many segments of our society just fall by the wayside. And then getting back to terminations, when and if it becomes illegal in many states, the women with resources will come to Massachusetts, will go to New York. We don't have to worry about that, but we do have to worry about the women of color and the women living in poverty who do not have the resources 
to help themselves and help their families. And these are the states that do not provide the safety nets that these families need. You know, we have to realize the majority of people living in poverty in this country are children. Mm. And the state of food insecurity that goes along with that is really a very sobering and, and frightening statistic. Yes. Yes, it is. And food pantries and food stamps do not help that much. It can help for a couple of weeks, but that's it. Food pantries, even it's not, you know, people think you can just walk into a food pantry and get what you need. Nope. You got to make an appointment and you're only allowed to make that appointment once a month Wow, in many places. So it's, it, it's a problem. And yes, some women come to us with an unplanned pregnancy to place their child for adoption because things are so desperate in their lives. Mm -hmm. But still, many of these women will choose to parent the child because they can't tolerate the sadness and the grief that goes along with that. And then many times these children may end up in foster care in the system. I think there's hundreds of thousands of children in the foster care system in this country. And the average time in foster care is at least two years. Mm. And the children are going back and forth between foster home and their biological family. And if it isn't well-sustained, then they'll be back in foster care. And that's a trauma for a child. We have a problem in this country. It is. And, and, it, and it deals with the most vulnerable people, uh, children. Yes. It's a Shanda. It really is a shameful thing. You're a mensch, and uh, thank God for that and for your soul and the way in which you've helped so many people and how you continue to make a difference in the world. And I want to thank you for sharing your time with us and to really enlighten us about the work that you do and the challenges that are ahead. So, Amy Cohen, thank you so much for spending time with us today on uh, TVA Now. No, you're welcome. And thank you for asking me to do this and to be a part of the podcast thing because it's great. I've enjoyed it myself. I love listening to them and learning more about people. Well, I'm so glad. Thanks, Amy. Take care. Find all of our episodes on BethAvoda.org or on podcast sites everywhere. Special thanks to our brilliant producer, Amy Tonconagy, and our intrepid engineer, Mike Kligerman. 